is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, your daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. On the menu, thousands of kids around L.A., We'll wake up tomorrow and get ready to go back to school in the middle of this winter COVID surge. But are campuses ready and able to welcome them back? Will there be enough teachers? And what about more COVID tests? We'll go in depth into what parents need to know about their kids heading back to their classrooms. Oh, and have you seen ads online for COVID testing kits? Or maybe you've seen those free COVID testing booths on street corners. Well, Some of them might be scams. Russia and the U.S. have had some tense discussions about Ukraine. Russia saying it is not going to invade, but the U.S. isn't so sure. Veterinarians, the ones who take care of our pets when they're sick, they work hard to treat the uh, furry friends who can't speak up. But there's a dark side of the job. Suicide rates for vets higher than the general population. We'll go in-depth to find out why. Stock markets taking some big hits to start the new year. Tech sector driving the downward surge. And then the comedy world, so losing Bob Saget, star of Full House, first host of America's Funniest Home Videos, died suddenly in Florida. We'll take a look back at his life. But we start with LAUSD kids headed back to school. With us is Kelly Gonez, president of the L.A. School Board of Education. Thank you for being with us. So let me ask you something. Uh, You know, there are parents, I'm sure, some of whom want their kids to go back. Many teachers want to go back. And then they look about at other cities like Chicago and many other big metropolitan areas around the U.S. where schools are still closed because of this particular Omicron surge. Uh, Are we ready for kids going back and are the teachers ready? Yeah, as a parent of young kids myself, I absolutely understand the worries that a lot of our parents and staff are feeling at this moment, given the rise in cases that we're seeing due to the Omicron variant. What I would say that distinguishes LA Unified from those other school districts is that we have really, throughout this pandemic, set a national standard when it comes to our robust COVID safety protocols and the issues and the mitigation measures that um, are causing those, those fights and school closures in places like Chicago are already in place here in Los Angeles. Um, and so I think that makes us as well positioned and as prepared as possible to open schools safely tomorrow. Okay, so we've heard the numbers are lower than the counties when you're doing this baseline testing. So maybe that's a good pointing towards the reopening. Is this going to be a student testing positive problem, though, if we run into problems, or is it going to be staff testing positive? Do you have plans if a whole bunch of teachers are out and you probably already know some of the numbers because they've already turned in their positive tests? Are there enough subs? Are there enough other employees that you can shift in and make sure there's somebody in those classrooms? Yes, you know, we have contingency plans for all scenarios. And I think that the the great part of having baseline testing is that it does really allow us to pinpoint at a school level, at a position level, how many elementary teachers are testing positive so that we can plan for how many folks we would need uh, to cover those positions. Um, And so we do have a pool of substitutes that we can call upon for our classroom teachers and other positions, as well as up to 4,000 certificated staff who are ready um, to head out to school sites and support as needed this week and in an ongoing way. So we feel as 
confident as we can be in those contingency plans, um, though obviously we will keep monitoring as testing continues today and early tomorrow morning. And let's talk about uh, testing. How is it going to be done and do you have enough testing kits? We do. Um, thankfully, as I said, LA Unified, we have um, the largest school-based testing program in the nation. And so already throughout the fall, we every student, every staff member was taking a weekly PCR test um, through LA Unified and getting those results very quickly. And so we were able to mobilize that testing operation last week. And uh, as of this morning, about 86% of employees had completed their tests and about 75% of students had completed their test. We also distributed close to 450,000 rapid antigen tests um, to our students over the weekend. And so they're uploading those results right now. Um, and as I said, testing continues today. So I think we feel confident that we'll get everyone tested before they come in. And that is critical to ensure that there is no additional spread happening at schools, that we're catching those positive cases before they enter our schools and classrooms. How long does the weekly testing continue for, you know, everybody, regardless of vaccination status as we move forward? So as of right now, we, we plan to continue that indefinitely. We will obviously continue to monitor the conditions. Um, back in the fall, I think there was a hope to, to perhaps shift to only testing uh, unvaccinated uh, members of our school communities every week. But obviously the conditions changed and therefore we're, we're going back to that weekly testing of everyone for as long as the conditions merit that. So we're really monitoring the science and those broader community conditions to make those types of decisions. I want to see if we can pin down some statistics about the faculty, uh, the teachers. Uh, what percentage are uh, not just in compliance with either the vaccination and or testing policy, but are actually vaccinated? Do we know? Well, 100% of, of employees who are at school sites are complying with the vaccination requirement. So you cannot be at a school site unless you are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. There are some who have accommodations who are in remote teaching positions. So for example, they're teaching with City of Angels or they're supporting uh, remotely in some way. Then those folks may have an exemption that prevents them from being vaccinated. But everyone at a school site is fully vaccinated against COVID. Will things, will things look different during this surge in terms of, I don't know, upping the mask game or we know sports is delayed. What about P.E.? Some of P.E. is inside or if it's swimming, you can't mask. Is that a go? What What is changing? So you, you noted the athletics and um, and, you know, we continue to require masking both indoors and outdoors in L.A. Unified. Again, there was a hope to potentially shift away from outdoor masking at places with high vaccination rates. But we're going to continue with those uh, universal masking requirements inside and outside. Um, and then when it comes to uh, the other issues you raise, you know, I think we're going to have to monitor and, and see, see how the conditions may change and may progress throughout this week. I do want to note on the masks as well is that, that LA County has updated their requirements. And so now all school employees are required to wear a surgical mask or above. So no more cloth masks. So we're ensuring that all employees have access to a surgical mask. And they're also encouraging students to wear surgical masks. So we've been distributing those over the weekend at our grab and go locations throughout the district. I want to talk a little bit, if we can, about what needs to be done going forward to help students who have been traumatized, who also perhaps uh, many other skills have fallen uh, by the wayside because of either inadequate or no uh, home learning for the past, uh, what, going on two years now. Uh, what's being done to remedy that? 
there's a lot of different efforts going on. Obviously, priority number one at this particular moment is ensuring the safe reopening of our schools tomorrow. But, um, you know, for example, we are hiring hundreds more psychiatric social workers and school counselors to help support the mental health needs of our students and address the, the trauma that so many of our families here in Los Angeles have gone through due to the pandemic. Um, we've also been reducing class sizes and hiring more teachers so that students can get individualized support um, to help ensure that they catch up on any material they may not have covered in the previous year and also accelerate their learning so that they're on track to graduate and go to college and career. So there's a number of different examples where we have supports in place to help address um, what we know are going to be longstanding impacts that the pandemic has had. Kelly Gonez, president of the LA School Board of Education. Kelly, thanks. Uh, If you've been to the pharmacy lately to buy a COVID test kit, there's a good chance you weren't able to find one. They've been very hard to come by. You might also have problems booking a COVID test because all the booking sites are full. Well, scammers have caught on to these problems and are now selling fake COVID tests online and setting up fake COVID testing booths. Here to tell us about what to watch out for is Steve McFarlane, president and CEO of Better Business Bureau of L.A. and Silicon Valley, and he is tracking numerous scams out there. Steve, I'm glad that someone is tracking all this stuff, and I'm glad it's you. Welcome to the program. So how could somebody make sure that, first of all, let's take the online stuff. How do they know that they're getting a legitimate COVID test? Well, it's uh, very difficult to be able to tell online. You can't really see, touch, and, uh, and know if the product works. We're not doctors, so, so we, we don't have a lot of information on that. And, and keep in mind, the, the evolution of COVID began with fake masks, fake uh, tests, uh, fake vaccinations, and then you could buy somebody else's record and so on. So the, the public has been hit just over and over and over again with a variety of different uh, uh, complaints at about a thousand a day in our office just in LA of complaints. And the public is desperate for, uh, for tests and results because they don't want to lose their jobs or, or potential jobs. And uh, you know what? The scammers know, and they are preying on those that don't want to wait uh, for a test, uh, a legitimate test or that they don't want to do the research. So uh, the scammers are getting, uh, inf- getting wise and their, their advertising is remarkably good. They're, they're looking at social media, texts, and, and, and robocalls to clients, uh, potential clients uh, across the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, soliciting uh, fake kits. And sometimes you may get one in the mail or, or delivered. Other times you don't receive anything at all. The third way that we're seeing at BBB is that they're asking you to pay for a in-office uh, clinic visit, and they'll give you an address, which is phony. Uh, they'll take your money and send you to a clinic that doesn't even exist. So there's a lot of ways that, that people are being scammed out there, and you really got to be uh, careful and, and do a lot of research. Okay, so what does the research look like? I guess I could cross-check whatever kit I'm looking at on whatever website. I'm finding it with the ones that actually have been approved by the FDA, and I can find that list somewhere and see if it's on there. Because if not, well, there's a clue that they're just sending me a, a you know swab to stick up my nose, and it's not going to do anything. Yeah, right. So begin with checking with your doctor first. Uh, uh, what tests uh, that they can recommend if they don't have any in stock? Uh, or at least uh, look at some viable options. Uh, so check with your doctor first 
You can also check with the state and county resources on the online uh, re, uh, internet to see what they would recommend and also what dates are available for testing. But you know, you got to do some research before you buy. That's the key here. And one of the ways to do that is to go to fda.gov. That is your best resource right now. And, and the fda.gov site is going to get you about 40 or so approved tests that can be shipped to you at home or that you can buy somewhere if you can find them. Uh, and they're also going to have a list at fda.gov on the ones, the, uh, the, the fake kits as well, some of the ones that are fake. You can also uh, go to cdc.gov and you can see some detailed guides on what kind of tests are out there. You can maybe get a little bit updated. I know we're not all medical experts, uh, technicians or doctors, but you can find out the difference between what a viral test is and what an antibody test is and what, what you may need for your particular uh, work and, and how long you need to quarantine and, and so on in the event that you get COVID. So those are two of the biggest resources do your research, fda.gov, go to cdc.gov to check for quarantine and other types, and also on bbb.org slash scam tracker to check for scams in your local area. Steve, uh, one more question about the, the tests you get on online. Let's say you, you uh, check the FDA list, and it's a test that's made by a reputable company or one of the companies anyway that's on the list. Uh, do we know that even then we're getting a legit test? I mean, are you seeing reports of people getting what they think is a legit test? It's on the list, but it's still phony? Yeah, we are having a couple examples of folks that uh, have gone through the approved list. Uh, and then um, they they get a, a, a test kit uh, that they are hoping is, uh, is accurate and so on, but it's not. Uh, so the representations from these people that it is FDA approved uh, and that everything is fine, uh, they'll, they'll end up shipping them a clandestine test kit. Let me give you some examples. Uh, they are long lines and people are getting really frustrated because they can't, they can't get tested and they don't want to lose work, especially if they're, if they're not infected. And there's actually these, these barkers uh, that uh, travel up and down the line and, and they've got these signs, Hey, uh, free testing and, and, and test kits, call this number or, or website. Uh, and uh, of course, they, they got you. Now, if you call them and then you, you, they want you to pay with gift cards, they want you to pay with wire or, or, or some type of a cash card program, you don't, have any, you don't have any recourse on something like that. We've even heard about uh, folks carrying signs and walking around food truck uh, accumulations. Uh, of course, we've all heard about the drive up and drive by sites where you see tents that are offering testing and so on. Uh, we've heard about the same situations at swap meets uh, where people are, are walking around with signs on accurate and free test kits with a, with a site or Facebook listing or a number. And of course, uh, there's always folks going door to door. Uh, hey, I've got test, uh, kits for you and uh, we can do that as well. Your best bet is, I know it's tough, but you gotta go make sure that the test is approved at fda.gov, that is your best shot. You can also go to bbb.org slash scam tracker to see if there's any scams in your zip code on fake test kits. And those are some, some good resources to at least protect yourself. But also one other thing, never pay with a wire, gift card, cash cards. Use a credit card because then you've got some recourse. 
recourse if, if the, the transaction is fake. Yeah, you can dispute it. Um, yeah. Real quick before we run out of time, because we mentioned the tents, and we've seen some of these, and maybe some are real, and, and maybe some are not, and people are running into this problem. You know, they're going to go to one of these sidewalk ones where it pops up and it says COVID testing here because they don't want to wait at the long line for the county or right. the city. And what, you're going to give away your driver's license or your date of birth or your email or, or some information, right? So they can contact you about your results, and then those results, they're never going to come. Yeah, not, not not only that. Now you've now you've coughed up your personal information, credit card, maybe other information, social security, date of birth, and so on, to make sure that uh, your insurance can pay for it, which is not going to happen uh, with with some of these fake tents. So you get you get uh, whipsawed. You, you don't even get a good kit, and on top of that, you've coughed up your personal information. So you got to be careful. Do we one very very quick uh, question? If we buy a kit at a drugstore, can we be guaranteed that those kits are real? Well, I think you do have some recourse there in a couple of ways. Uh, you, you know, the, the hard part is, is that, you know, let's suppose that it's negative and then you test later on that it's positive. How do you know when you got the, the disease and, and so on? And, and that, that's a tough area. But uh, at least you've got some recourse from the store, uh, the retail outlet and your credit card both, if you think something's wrong, as opposed to buying it from a swap meet or somebody in line or, or some pop-up tent or whatever. Your chances are better from doing, uh, you know, better if you if you do it the right way. Steve McFarland, President, CEO, Better Business Bureau of LA and Silicon Valley. You're listening to KNX in depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The U.S. and Russia having a tough time talking to each other about Ukraine. Russia says it doesn't want Ukraine to be a part of NATO. U.S. says Russia better not invade its neighbor. Now, Russia says it has no plans for an invasion, but that might not be the entire truth. Robert English is director of Central European Studies at USC and an expert on domestic and foreign politics of Russia and Eastern Europe. He's currently in Italy. Uh, thanks for joining us from there. Uh, Robert, uh, how dangerous of a situation are we in at the moment, in your view? Oh, it's very dangerous with both sides, sides poised with heavy weaponry. But I think it got a little less dangerous today because the first meeting between the American and Russian officials was actually cautiously optimistic. We saw some hints of progress, too early to say a breakthrough or a compromise, but a little less dangerous than before, a little stepping back from the brink. Is that surprising? Because I'd seen some people kind of write off these talks like, yeah, we're going into talks, but psh, nothing's going to happen with these. Um, it probably is surprising to most Americans. Our media coverage and our, of course, focus on our own government has one slant. But this is a NATO matter, not just a U.S. matter. And from over here in Europe and many of the key NATO countries like France and Germany, even Italy, have a more have a softer position, a little more inclined to compromise with Russia than Washington is. And NATO must act in you know unison, in, in chorus. So I think the U.S. will have to take the NATO allies' positions into account and um, try a little harder to meet some of Russia's demands while standing firm on our key principles. Okay, but as you know, and maybe for, for those listening who, who don't, some of those demands that Vladimir Putin wants, because he wants to increase the sphere of influence, right, for Russia, uh, is he wants a guarantee 
that that uh, you know NATO won't further expand uh, eastward. He wants a guarantee that a country like Ukraine uh, that wants to join NATO but so far has not been able to doesn't ever join NATO. Is this something that the U.S. ever is going to go along with? You're probably right about that. We will not formally ever close the door to any qualified European country. So Russia won't get the ironclad written assurances it wants there. But it might get some kind of unofficial assurances or commitment that no major principled changes will be taken without further consultation, some kind of halfway house. And in return, you know, Russia, of course, there are lots of other things we're bargaining over, over deployments, missiles, the kinds of weaponry on either side. So I can see a lot of give and take that both sides could declare victory on by lowering the escalation in other you know, deployments, while Russia will have to accept some finessing, something less than its maximal demand on this question of closing the door forever. And you think Putin could be happy with that in these list of demands aren't just things he's throwing out there, but in the back of his mind saying, you know what, I'm going to redraw these boundaries anyways, I'm going in, even despite what I'm putting out front on paper. Um, that is possible. I don't think it's likely. I think Putin knows that going in would be the biggest disaster possible for Russia militarily, politically. And it's the one thing that would unite the NATO allies firmly to really slam Russia hard with crippling sanctions and isolation that they haven't agreed to so far. Right now, we're the ones threatening tougher sanctions. And if you listen to the German uh, French and Italian positions, they don't want that, and they're distancing themselves. But they wouldn't. They would join with us were Putin to invade. So that would be foolish. Um, and I don't think he will do that. I think he's saber-rattling. He's applying maximal pressure. But he doesn't want to have to take that step. And I think he'll be forced to settle for half a loaf. And frankly, that's a good deal for both sides, because the honest truth is NATO is not likely to take in any new members for a long time. It's having trouble digesting countries like Montenegro. It's having trouble with Poland and Hungary that are turning away from democracy. And again, the view from here in Europe is we don't even want more NATO expansion. Why not give the Russians some kind of assurance? Because Ukraine's not going anywhere in the near future anyway. And let's focus on rebuilding the country economically. That's where its big problems lie. So, um, yeah, it'll take some compromise on both sides, but I am a little more optimistic than the view from Washington would suggest. Very uh, quickly, because we're going to run out of time, since you're in Italy, what's the COVID situation like there now? It's pretty bad. Um, per capita, I think it's actually a little bit worse than in the U.S., meaning, you know, infections per 1,000 people. Um, there is a much higher vaccination rate here. As you probably know, over 80%, whereas in the U.S. it's not even 70. Yet this current variant breaks right through um, those vaccinations. The good news is people aren't getting as sick. We were locked down with COVID in our family, uh, but it came through like a bad flu. Unfortunately, weak old people, they suffer more. So we're roughly in the same place as you are in California, maybe just a little ahead on the curve. So I can tell you, you have you can look forward to the peak coming and something easing in oh, the near future. Terrific. <laughs> All right. Robert English, Director of Central European Studies at USC. Veterinarians perform an important function in our society. They help our beloved pets feel better in their time of need. Now, while there's joy in helping our four-legged friends, there's also a tremendous amount of stress 
So much so that veterinarians are three times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. Pandemic has made the stress of the job already worse. With us is Dr. Lisa Moses, veterinarian and bioethicist at Harvard Medical School's Center for Bioethics. And Dr. Indu Mani, fellow at Harvard's Medical School's Center for Bioethics, associate veterinarian, VCA Brookline Animal Hospital. Doctors, thanks for being with us. Um, Dr. Moses, let's start with you. I saw somebody quoted on this saying, you know, we all get attached to patients, obviously. How can you not? You went into this because you love animals. Um, but you guys, you lose a lot more of them than MDs do. Physicians, just pets don't live as long as humans. Uh, that can't be easy. You're right. It's really hard. Um, our work, unfortunately is full of losing our patients, and there's no question that it has an impact on us. Dr. Mone, I'm curious, uh, we mentioned in the setup, uh, of course, about pandemic too. Uh, how has the pandemic, if you think it has, fed into the particular plight that veterinarians have in terms of a suicide rate? Well, I think that veterinarians currently practicing during the pandemic are overwhelmed not only by patient numbers, uh, but also, also the state of mind of, of all of us right now in the midst of a, you know, crushing uh, pandemic and psychological stress that our clients and we are suffering together. So how do you try and get through when you're coping with that? Because, yeah, it's been stressful for everybody. We've all felt it in different ways, but you're still doing this job and everything that comes with it on top of it. And you're you're working more. I mean, we've done stories before with vets and the lines are hours long and you can't get into the clinic sometimes because you're overwhelmed because so many people went and got pets, which is a good thing because you wanted somebody to be home with you. You want to take care of it. But, you know, all the medical needs fall to, to you guys. Yeah, we just we just do the best we can. We 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 have incredibly close teams, um, and Lisa will know our veterinarians um, are really largely supported by our technicians, our veterinary assistants, our client service representatives, our kennel kennel workers. We all work together to try to create the most strong um, infrastructure for our patients who are coming to see us. Um, it's 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 been very stressful. We we eat a lot. <laughs> we order a lot of pizza. <laughs> and we and we know that pet owners are feeling all kinds of external stresses right now, just like everybody else is and have been for such a long time. So I think it's just compounded things so much. Well, I, I, I guess I'm still a little puzzled, though, Dr. Moses, but why do you think, uh, I don't know what the statistics shows, but, but why do you think veterinarians in particular are being hit particularly hard? Well, this is not a new problem. Um, in fact, I've been looking at this problem along with many other folks in my field for about 20 years now. So we know that it is worse during the pandemic, but this is by no means a new problem. And I think for all of us who are thinking about it, we know that there's lots of reasons why veterinarians are really negatively impacted by the emotional stakes in our work. But a lot of it is that we are often caught between what we really think is the right thing to do for our patient, but not being able to do the right things for our patient. And that is hard to swallow. How so? Can you give me an example? Is this, is this someone sure. feeling like pet's property and not family member or what? 
You know, I don't actually think that happens very often. It's technically true that pets are property, but people don't act like that. People act like pets are a beloved member of their family. The problem is, is that veterinary care is expensive and there are huge inequities in people's access to veterinary care. And they really oftentimes cannot afford the kind of care that they wanna give their pets. We know that, but of course, we also feel strongly that we wanna do the best thing we can for our pets. And that, that problem of not people not being able to afford the care that everyone thinks the animals should have is a huge driver to this problem. But it's not the only driver. It's just one of them. Dr. Mani, what, what are some of the solutions, do you think, to this issue about, in, in particular, uh, the higher rate of uh, suicides? I think, I think in the past, when people see trends like, like suicidality in a population, they might look to the population, um, what self-selects a population, and through that, try to modify the behaviors through harnessing the personal agency of its members. But um, what, what's so profound in the research that um, Dr. Moses has done is that she, she identified some solid clinical evidence for things in the infrastructure of the profession that put veterinarians at greater risk of this type of sadness and this type of what what Dr. Moses is referring to is moral distress. And without a lot of tools to combat that, I think it becomes pervasive um, and insidious in the population. There are lots of thoughts about tools, way to, ways to ameliorate moral distress. But I think at this point, we just have to start having the conversation that this exists in our profession. Well, right. At least, then, at least you know that the problem is is there now. So now you can you can talk about it. That's yeah, and I and I want to make it clear that um, it's not just about suicide. It's about veterinarians being emotionally impacted to such a large extent that they're leaving the profession. They're unable to work in the way that they want to work. So we're concerned about more than just suicide. We want to we want to make sure that the people who are giving care to your beloved animal family members are able to keep giving care. Dr. Lisa Moses, veterinarian bioethicist at Harvard's Medical School Center for Bioethics. Dr. Indumani, fellow at Harvard and a veterinarian VCA Brookline Animal Hospital. Thanks to you both for talking to us. This is KNX In-Depth, daily deep dive into some of the more important stories, interesting ones affecting all of our lives. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman might not want to take a look at the uh, portfolio today. 401k stock market hasn't been looking so good to start 2022. CNBC's Jim Cramer calling it treacherous right now. What's driving stocks down and what sectors are getting beaten up with us is business and financial analyst Brent Wilsey, who's president of Wilsey Asset Management. Brent, thanks for being with us. So uh, Mike and I were talking a little earlier. Uh, this isn't a good day. It isn't even a good week to look at your 401k 
I looked at my 401k, and I was really dumb. I looked at <laughs> it today. He's a brave person. Yeah, well, I looked at it on Friday, and I thought, oh, God. Stop and then, looking. I know, and, but I, I'm kind of drawn to it. It's not a good idea, though, Clutton is it? for punishment. Yeah. Yeah, it's really not a good idea. And and I always tell people that there's two different markets going on. Just because your 401k is going down, you could be in what I call the high flyers, and that's what's going on. We've been talking about this for the past year, saying when interest rates rise, these high flyers like Microsoft and Google, uh, they're going to get hit. And one thing people don't realize, the NASDAQ, about 37% of the NASDAQ, not including the big ones yet, but it's down about 50% from their high. So this is what the taste is we're getting now of what 2022 is going to be like. If you're in these high-growth companies, you need to kind of readdress your portfolio and say, maybe I need to get some food companies, some financial companies in there, because what's happened in the past and has done well is not going to do well in 2022. And is that what we're seeing starts to happen? This isn't COVID concerns. This isn't some of the other things we've been dealing with. This is people reshuffling portfolios. This is things selling because now we're looking at the interest rates and the Fed and all the rest of it that's ahead for us this year. And that's exactly correct. Is that it's really a financial thing. I mean, the Fed, we got a $9 trillion uh, balance there. And the Fed is starting to work on that. Uh, We know it's going to raise rates three, maybe four times this year. The thing people don't understand is the Fed balance sheet. They're going to pay off or stop renewing, I'll say, between 25 and $75 billion a month. That is them buying the treasuries, the mortgage-backed securities. That's the long end of the market, and that's what's really going to hurt uh, some of these high-growth stocks and also your interest rate sensitive stocks when they start reducing, coming into the markets to buy all these, these bonds. The market's going to go you know, the way it should be, a free market, and you'll see rates rise probably at least a half, maybe a point. And that's not good for your high valuation stocks that a lot of people become very comfortable with. It's, it's going to be a different year this year. You know, to go back again to the 401ks, a lot of people have managed accounts. Can those people be confident that whoever's managing it is going to know to move the, the, the stocks to the ones that are going to fare better in 2022, or at least they hope will? Well, that's a great question. I'd love to say yes, but the answer is no. you got to kind of do some of your own research and kind of check uh, where are you invested? Um, because maybe your manager is a growth manager, and I saw this back, but in this a long time, I saw back in the tech boom and bust, some of these brokers like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. It will be fine. It may not be fine. So you need to check on your 401k. What are you invested in? And then just come up with enough to ask questions. I tell people it's like your car. You know, if your car is kind of, you know, putting along and coughing and so forth, you don't know what it is, but you, you ask the mechanic the same question. If you have a good manager for your portfolio, you say, it just doesn't look right. I've noticed I've got a lot of Google, a lot of um, Microsoft, Apple, my portfolio. I know those are high-value stocks. Should we be doing something else? And then listen to the answer he says. If he says or she says, no, and here's why, does it make sense? Or does it sound like a sales line? Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Brent, thanks. Hollywood, the comedy world, mourning the loss of Bob Saget, actor and comedian found dead in a hotel room in Orlando, Florida, yesterday. Saget is perhaps best known for his role as Danny Tanner on the ABC sitcom Full House. You all take as much pride in a clean house as I do. Now let's get back out there and really clean. And when you're all done, I got a special surprise for you. You're taking us to Happy Mountain? No, it's even better than that, honey. I'm putting new shelf paper in each and every one of your closets. Yay! 
<laughs> he was also the host of America's Funniest Home Video, as well as the narrator of CBS's How I Met Your Mother. While he had a wholesome image, thanks to his uh, character on TV, uh, Bob Saget had an edgy and even raunchy side to his comedy. With us to talk about his life and his legacy, Tom Dreesen, longtime stand-up comedian here in L.A. He's been on The Tonight Show a number of times over the years. New Saget for roughly 40 years. Tom, thanks for coming on and talking to us. Sorry for the loss of someone you knew for so long. What are you thinking about him today? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I was stunned because he was so full of energy and so full of life. You know, whenever you saw him, and then when I heard that he passed away, they found him in his hotel room. I, I, it just rocked me because I knew he was out on the road, too. And, uh, you know, he had tweeted that he had, uh, his last tweet was how much he enjoyed. He did a two-hour set, which doesn't surprise me because, you know, Bob could, he probably could have done a four-hour set. You know, he was just, he, he was so off the top of his head with with material sometimes, as well as having a, a, a set you know, amount of material. He also could ad lib within the confines of that so well. So anyhow, it rocked me when I heard that yeah. that, that he's gone, and I and I feel bad, you know, for his family. You know, Tom, we we mentioned in the in the setup that uh, you know his his routines in a in a club are somewhat different, <laughs> a lot different than perhaps what people who just caught him on TV experience. Can you can you talk about that a bit? <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. This is the father of the Olsen twins. You know, I play golf with their dad, with the, with the Olsen twins' dad all the time, Davey. He's a good buddy of mine. But we used to laugh about that, too, because, Bobby, you know, if you're going in to see that father of those children, that's not who you saw on stage. He once he once came to me and said, Tom, can you do a charity show for me? It's more for my charity at the Universal Sheraton. He said, it's a Saturday afternoon. I had to give up golf to go over to do this, but he was a friend, and I said, I forgot. But the reason was, he said, Tom, there's going to be women and children in the audience, and they want me to do uh, a 25 set, uh, 25 minute set of clean material. He said, <laughs> he said you got to do, do it, Tom. He said, I don't have three minutes of clean material. That's <laughs> oh, great. Do you think that was part of it, though? Because for a certain generation, they grew up watching him, like 90s kids, right? Watched him on Full House, and it was like the dad and the life lessons, and that's great. And then when they got old enough to realize, then it was like, oh, wow. Like, now I see him in this whole different light. Yeah. No question about it. No question about it. But by the way, he even he even rocked me sometimes when I go in there. See, because I came from the era, you know, as you mentioned, the Tonight Show. I did sixty-one appearances on the Tonight Show. To do the Tonight Show, you had to come up with six minutes of material, original material that Johnny Carson wanted. He didn't want two guys going to bar jokes. Original material that could make Grandma and Grandpa, Mom and Dad, and the kids laugh. You know. So that's what we were always focused on doing that kind of material. You know, so with Bob. When you, if you, you saw his act, you thought, where is he going to go with that? But fortunately, along came cable television. And on cable, you could say whatever you wanted to say, you know. So, and, and he certainly did say whatever he wanted to say. Did he have an influence, do you think, on others and perhaps some younger comedians? I, 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 I would say so. You know, all comedians have an influence on the newer generation, there's comedians that will come up to me and say, hey, I saw you on The Tonight Show or on David Letterman Show, and, you know, and you influenced me in one way or another, you know, and I always say, yeah, you saw me do it, and you say, hell, if he can do that, I can do that, you know, <laughs> but in Bob's case, I, I'm sure he influenced a lot of people, a lot of young comedians, because when he would go on at the Improv or at the Laugh Factory, uh, he, you know, the other kids, the other comedians, new comedians would come in to watch him, you know. Because um, he, he was, he was just free flowing. His mind went anywhere, 
anywhere it wanted to go, you know, and he'd, he'd hopefully find some material. And he would come up with set material, but like I said, he could ad-lib so well, too. So many stories about, you know, how generous he was with his time or how nice he was coming from other comics and people who met him. Where does that come from? Because it doesn't always stick with people when they get super famous. But is it the years on, on the smaller stage or at the improv or the comedy store, remembering what that was like and then going, OK, maybe you're in that place now. So here's the time I have for you and I'm going to be generous with it. Yeah. By the way, that's I, I'm that way. And Bob was that way. We're all of us. I, I never forgot those struggling years hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard, begging to work for free at the comedy store. I mean, Bob was the same way. There's so many rejections that you go through as a stand-up comedian in your years in the business, the ups and the downs and the highs and lows. They like you. They don't like you. You got the job. You don't get the job. But you remember that. that. And so, uh, you you know, when other young kids come up to you, comedians come up, Bob was always very generous with his advice and with his time with them, you know, um, you know, it, it, because he, he never, the oldest cliche in the world, he never forgot where he came from. What what made him, though, a, a good comedian? And, I, and I'm asking because there's a more fundamental question, which is what makes some comedians better than others? I, I've seen your, you a number of times, and you're very funny. You're a very funny guy. Uh, and then I've seen other people around you, at, you know, do a set, and they're not as funny. And I, and I have sometimes left thinking... Why is it that Tom's so good? Why is it was Bob so good? I, I, I can teach you a lot about comedy, about stand-up, and I've done that at universities and at comedy clubs where I give a, a, a you know talk to the young comedians. I can teach you a lot of things: how to write a joke, joke structure. Uh, I can't teach you timing. You either have it or you don't, and it's hard to describe what timing is. But it's knowing. You know, the punchline, knowing where the pause is at, it's instinctive in you. And Bob had that instinct. You know, he had that great instinct of knowing where the punchline was and knowing how to set the joke up, how to set the story up and how to, you know, hit that punchline, how to pause, how to wait before you start the next, you know, piece of material. You know, that's uh, that's a, a God-given gift that you develop. You know, he Bob had it. Is there anything like being out there with a live audience? Because, you know, what we mentioned at the beginning of this and, and you were saying, and his last, you know, Instagram post was talking about how happy he was to be out on the road and how he's, you know, finding this life again and he's just loving every minute of it and he did the two-hour set. Is that somewhat of a comfort, too, knowing that, you know, the night before he was living exactly how he wanted to? Absolutely. It's even, I've been doing it 51 years. I'm just as excited this weekend when I want at the Laugh Actor, the Improv, or Comedy Store. I'm just to try out new material. I'm just as excited now today as I used to be when I first started. It's it's the highest of highs, stand-up comedy, and the lowest of lows when it doesn't work. You know, so I can understand when Bob said how excited he was to be back on the stage again because of the COVID thing shutting everything down. You know, yeah, it's 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 just. It's so much fun to be a stand-up comedian. It's the greatest profession on the planet because people are better off for having had your service. Bob made millions of people laugh in their lifetime. We now know that laughter is healing. You know, I don't want to go through the whole story of it, but Norman Cousins wrote the book, uh, you know, uh, The Anatomy of an Illness and, and uh, Laughter Math, and how laugh, UCLA did research of what happens to the human body when People laughed, and an endorphin is released from the brain into the bloodstream. That's why you have this great sense of well-being after you had a hearty laugh. You go, oh, and that sense of well-being. Your body's going through an actual chemical change. And if you're laughing at a comedian, you're not thinking of your problems. You know, so 
uh, you know, so it's a psychological deterrent and physiologically therapeutic. And Bob Saget healed millions of people in his lifetime. You know, they walked out feeling better than they did when they walked in. And that's what every comedian wants. Tom Dreesen, longtime stand-up comedian here in L.A., knew Bob Saget for 40 years. Tom, thanks for talking to us. That's In Depth for the Day. We'll be back tomorrow.